Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, listeners. I'm going to recycle the bumpers from the original Patreon podcast of this episode, which was recorded way back in 2016. Uh, I've made a few edits here and there when I talk about episode numbers, you know, just so they make sense to you. But otherwise, it's the original content. So, over to me, seven years ago. I'll talk to you about it afterwards, but for now, I'll shut my pie hole and get out of the way of the curtain, which will in a moment rise on David Flinch. You remember him. We last saw him in Season 3, Episode 5. I know, that seems such a long time ago. But remember, we have been back in time, listeners. We left David at the end of Season 3, Episode 5. He'll give you his own little catch-up in a moment. And then we went back in time, five nights, uh, and everything that has happened since Season 3, Episode 5, are the events that lead up to where we are now, coming back to our senses as the sleeping draught wears off in... Underwood and Flinch, Season 4, Underground, written and performed for podcast by Mike Bennett. This podcast is intended for an adult audience. Episode 6. David's eyes opened to sunlight shining through a sash window. He was lying on his side in a bed, his face half sunken into a soft white pillow. He moved his head and the settled spirit-level bubble of pain moved to clang against the inside of his skull. He winced. A hangover? He remembered drinking. Whiskey. But where? Then he remembered Daventry and West, their underground offices. He'd come back to England, to Lisa. A flash of memory, of fire and screaming. He shut his eyes tight. She was dead. A vampire, waiting for him. He'd gone to Daventry and West for help. They'd had drinks. He'd only had a couple, but he'd passed out. No... They drugged him. Anger flared and jolted him awake. 
He rolled onto his back, and from somewhere nearby a voice said, He's awake. David raised his head from the pillow. A man sat on the other side of the room with a finger touched to a Bluetooth earpiece. His eyes were on David, but he was listening to someone speaking at the other end of the line. A heavy-set man in his late thirties or early forties wearing a dark suit that seemed just a little too small for him, his muscles and thick neck straining against the confines of an outfit that he'd either outgrown or bought precisely because it accentuated his beefiness. "'Where am I?' asked David. The man nodded, but not in response to David. "Okay." David repeated more loudly. "'Where am I?' "'Mr. Flinch,' said the man as he disconnected his call. "'Don't worry, sir. You're all right. You're a guest of the partners.' He smiled pleasantly. "'The partners? You mean the men that drugged me?' David's voice sounded slurred, like part of his consciousness was still submerged in sleep. "'I'm afraid I couldn't comment on that, sir. Where are we?' In Spain? No, sir, no such luck. You're still in London? David looked around. The decor and furnishings and the pale sunlight outside suggested the man was telling the truth. Why? he asked. They said I had to go back. Again, sir, I'm afraid I can't comment. Well, who are you then? Surely you can comment on that. My name's Tully, sir. I'm here to ensure that no harm comes to you. Well, you're a bit late for that, Mr. Tully. Harm's already been done, and I'd like to speak to the men responsible. So if you could just ring them up on that thing in your ear, I'd be grateful. All in good time, sir. I imagine you ought to get dressed first. You'll find fresh clothes in the wardrobe, and just through there is a bathroom and shower. He indicated a door beside the bed. You'll also find a shaving kit and a toothbrush. David turned to the door, noticing as he did that he was wearing stripy blue pyjamas. He didn't own any pyjamas. What are these? He said, pinching the fabric of his sleeve. Pyjamas, sir. Miss Daventry popped out to buy you them and some other necessaries once they decided that you'd be staying with us. (laughs) And how did they decide that? Toss of a coin, was it? What happened? I bet they couldn't get a plane, could they? I really couldn't say, sir. I'm not privy to such things, but I'm sure everything will be explained to you soon enough. David drew back the covers and swung his legs out of the bed. He winced as the spirit-level bubble in his head clanged around before settling again. He looked at his pyjama-clad legs. So where are my clothes? In the laundry, sir. Great, thought David. The room was simply but tastefully furnished. The bed was single, with a white headboard. Beside it was a nightstand with a small bedside lamp. There was a single wardrobe and a chest of drawers. The walls were papered with an ivory wallpaper, and the polished floorboards were largely covered by a green rug that his feet told him was of very good quality. He stood up and went over to the window. Outside was a wide road busy with traffic, including two black cabs and a red double-decker bus. He was in London all right. He estimated that he must be about four floors up. Opposite, through a border of trees, was an expansive green space, a park or public garden. 
What's that over there? Hyde Park, sir. Hyde Park? That was good. He felt reassured by the familiar landmark. At least now he knew where he was. There was a knock at the door. David turned to see another man come in. Like Tully, he wore a suit, but he was younger and of slimmer build. The man was about to speak to Tully when he saw David. Ah, he said. There he is. Good to see you up and about, Mr Flinch. My name's Kendall. I work with Mr Tully here. You're right. As well as can be expected, said David. Good to hear it, sir. Kendall bent to talk to Tully. They spoke in muted tones for a moment before Kendall straightened up and, with a parting nod to David, went out again. How many more of you are there? David asked Tully. Just Mr Kendall and myself, sir. We're all you need. For what? For protection, sir. Someone tried to kill you, remember? Something tried to kill me, Mr Tully. They told you that much, I presume? Yes, sir. I'm fully apprised as to the nature of the threat. And you think the threat is still a threat? Better to be safe than sorry, sir. David gave a vague nod, sizing Tully up and weighing his chances in a fight against a vampire like Underwood. He wasn't optimistic. He turned back to look out of the window, now measuring the drop to the street below in the event that he had to flee while Beefcake here was getting his throat ripped out. Mr Kendall just informed me that Miss Daventry's on her way, sir. She should be here very shortly. David turned back to him. Miss Daventry? What about Mr Daventry and Mr West? I imagine they're otherwise engaged, sir. Of course they are, thought David. But engaged in what? What were those two wankers up to? They thought they'd been able to handle Lisa's killer on their own. Wanted him out of the way so badly that they'd resorted to drugging him. And yet now, here he was, still in London. What had happened to change their minds? He went over to the wardrobe to look at the clothes Elizabeth had bought for him. Two plain white shirts, two pairs of black trousers, two jackets, one black, one tan, and at the bottom of the wardrobe, a pair of black Oxfords. All very nice, but not very him. Where are my trainers? I don't know, sir. You'll have to ask Miss Daventry. You'll find underwear and socks in the top drawer there. He pointed to the chest of drawers. David went over and pulled out the top drawer. A pack of three Marks and Spencer's boxer shorts, grey, and a pack of five socks, black. He pulled out the other drawers. They were all empty. Where's my stuff? My passport, my wallet, my phone. Again, sir, said Tully, with a hint of weariness. You'll need to speak to Miss Daventry. Oh, for fuck's sake. David snatched some underwear and socks, then slammed the drawer home. What's their game, Tully? Tully opened his mouth to speak out, but David cut him off. I know, I know. You can't say. He went into the bathroom and shut the door. A short while later, having shaved, showered and selected the black jacket over the tan, David followed Tully down carpeted stairs. The building appeared to be a private house, though there was no indication that it was currently occupied. No photographs or pictures on the walls, no ornaments or books. 
It was like a part-furnished rental property between tenancies. When they reached the ground floor, Tully led the way along a hallway to two double doors, which he pushed open onto a drawing room. Elizabeth Daventry sat alone at a table, reading a newspaper. She was in silhouette, the late afternoon sunlight streaming in through the large bay window behind her. The room smelled of fresh coffee, and David noticed a cafetiere on the table, a ghost of steam drifting from its spout. Elizabeth looked up and smiled. Ah, David. She gestured for him to join her at the table. Would you like some coffee? Yes, thank you. Help yourself. There's milk, cream, sugar. David sat down and looked around the room. It was like the rest of the house he'd seen so far, an old but immaculate blank canvas. Kendall stood by the fireplace. He'd been texting someone on his phone, but now he moved to join Tully by the door. I'm so glad to see the clothes fit. Do you like them? David picked up the cafetiere and poured himself a cup of black coffee. They're fine. How much do I owe you? Oh, please. She waved the suggestion away. They're on the company tab. It was the least I could do after the sleeping draft incident. I'm so sorry about that, but believe me, the partners were only doing what they sincerely thought was best for you. <laughs> best for them, you mean? Best for everyone, David. It's a complicated situation we find ourselves in. The partners were only trying to reduce that complication by returning you to Spain. Yeah, I got that. I'm a liability, I think was how your dad put it. Elizabeth smiled. My father can be rather blunt at times. He doesn't spare people's feelings when it comes to getting to the bottom line. Is that right? Well, the bottom line seems to have shifted a bit, doesn't it? Why am I, liability that I am, still here and not back in Spain? You sound upset, said Elizabeth. Isn't that what you wanted? It's not what they wanted, is it? They wanted me well out of it, yet for some reason they've changed their minds. Why? Don't tell me they realise the liability is, in fact, an asset. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. She handed him the newspaper she'd been reading. But I will say that the complicated situation we faced this morning has since grown considerably more complicated. David took the newspaper. It was a tabloid. The headline, large and bold, made his blood freeze. London vampire slays too. He looked up at her. What's this? Apparently it's London's latest serial killer, the London vampire. Jesus Christ! Is it... As you might expect, as far as the press are concerned, it's most definitely the work of a human. The last thing they're going to think is that there's a real vampire on the loose. Yeah, but... What do you think? What do the partners think? I mean, it can't be a coincidence. Lisa's death and now this. Elizabeth sat back and steepled her fingers. Yes, we agree. It can't be a coincidence. So when did this happen? Well, the story broke yesterday evening in one of the free papers. And you didn't see it? We don't tend to pay attention to the tabloid press, David. For the same reason, we didn't see this thing today either. Fortunately, Lance, the security man you met earlier, purchased a copy on his lunch break and brought it straight to our attention. David was reading. Two people murdered, 
drained of blood. It says here they were found yesterday morning. Yes, they were killed the night before. So the killer could have gone to ground for the day and then the next night travelled down to Brighton and, in his mind, he saw Underwood in the back of a car prowling his street in darkness. He pushed the image away and reached for his coffee. Is this paper all the information you have? Elizabeth replaced her cup in its saucer. No, I have brought you all the newspapers, including the one from last night that broke the story. They're just over there on a table behind you. Though they're all thin on detail, they've no clue as to whom they might be. They? What, the victims? No, the vampires. Vampires? Plural? You mean, you think there's more than one of them? Oh, almost certainly. No one vampire would need to drain two people to death in one night. Well, what if feeding wasn't the only motive? One victim was killed for food, but the other one could have been a witness or something. Yes, perhaps. But there's also the matter of the entirely different modus operandi. You mean the way he did it? I don't see anything about the specifics in the paper. Well, no, you won't. All the press have is the police statement and the alleged quotes of the original journalist's inside source, all of which amounts to very little. However, we, as I'm sure you know, have our own inside sources at Scotland Yard. By we, you mean the sect, right? Yes. One of our people at the Yard is a very high-ranking officer, and though they're not directly connected to the case... They do have access to classified information, and what they've told us about the different crime scenes suggests two very different killers. How? Well, the first victim to be found was a young woman. Now, she'd had sex, presumably with the killer, just before she was murdered. Her body was then mutilated, we think to conceal the bite marks on the neck, before being washed down, wrapped in plastic and dumped in the skip where she was later discovered. The location where the actual murder took place is unknown. So, in this case, there were clear attempts made to neutralise evidence and conceal the vampiric motive. However, the second victim to be found, the priest, was attacked in his church and left in a pool of his own blood, with the vampire's bite marks still clearly visible on his neck. No attempt made to hide the body, no mutilation to hide the wounds. He was just left there. According to our source, the body and crime scene were absolutely awash with forensic evidence. So what about the other victim, the woman? Was there any evidence at that scene? Not so much. Care was taken. As I say, the body was washed, wrapped in plastic, handled with gloves. David nodded thoughtfully. Hmm, it does sound like the work of two people, all right. Yes, one organised, the other disorganised. Well, one thing we do know, and that's that Lisa's killer was organised. She was targeted. Or rather, you were. Either way, she wasn't an accident. Agreed. So, one of them, likely the more experienced of the two, is the one who wants to kill you. The other? She shrugged. Now there, we've no idea. Our guess is that we're dealing with a newborn vampire, one with little instruction. A newborn? Could the two of them be connected somehow? Who knows? But after the mess the newborn left at the church, there's a very good chance he'll soon be in the hands of the police. And that's bad, right? Very. 
We have to get to him before they do. And do what? Remove him. You mean, kill him? Oh, no, said Elizabeth, slightly shocked. Not if it can be helped. There are rules, remember? Vampires don't kill vampires, and neither do their devotions. Their what? Their devotions. Cults of devotion. She saw puzzlement on David's face. You don't know about this? David shook his head. She smiled. How funny that you were the head of one and didn't even know what it was. You're talking about a sect? Yes, the sect is Underwood's cult of devotion. Most vampires have one. Some are content with a single person, a helper or guardian, while others, over time, assemble networks of varying sizes, cults of devotion, devoted to the furtherance and well-being of their masters. So you're saying there are other sects? Well, not by that name, no, but yes, other cults of devotion, though there is nothing to compare to ours. Lord Underwood's sect has no equal. Yeah, but that's what I all say. So how many of these cults are there? It's impossible to say. Our vampire clients, those of Lord Underwood's bloodline, are directly linked to the sect, so these we know of. But others, those which rise around the vampires of other bloodlines... She shrugged. I really couldn't say. So our killer, or killers, could be from one of these other bloodlines, then? Well, it's possible, but... Elizabeth shook her head. We don't think so. It just doesn't happen. It's one of the first things a master instills in his newborn. Vampires don't kill vampires or members of their devotions. If they did, the situation would be chaos. Retaliations, counter-retaliations, it'd be like mob war. You can't hide that level of murder and mayhem from the police or the press. The end result being that vampires, for so long the subject of myth, legend and cheesy movies, would suddenly become exposed as a reality. Nobody wants that. It could mean the end of the species. OK, well, is there any way that you can contact these other vampires or their cults of devotion? Ask them if they know anything about this London vampire business. No. No, said David, surprised. But you must have some contact with them, surely. Elizabeth shook her head. Like us, they're hidden. We don't seek them, and they don't seek us. It's mutually understood. It goes back to the times of persecution. If cults don't know about each other, then they can't betray each other under torture. Torture? Of course. The use of torture mightn't be allowed in the West these days, at least not officially, but that's a comparatively recent development. But you know who the other vampires are, the, the heads of these cults? Some, yes, but you can't know all. They grow in darkness, and for reasons I've just explained, we don't shine any lights into that darkness. But if this is true, how can you then say that there are no other vampires in London? Or anywhere else in the UK? They could be all over the place. Elizabeth looked at him like he'd just asked the stupidest question in the world. Because we are Lord Underwood's sect. If a vampire was to start operating in this city or anywhere else in this country, we'd know about it immediately. We have eyes and ears everywhere. 
Well, so what? You can't stop them. You can't push them out of town. Your own code prevents you from hurting them. We wouldn't have to hurt them. There are security forces that would do that. As I told you earlier, Britain, indeed the West, is almost entirely vampire-free. Not any more, apparently. No, indeed. Well, this is one of the things we need to talk to you about, David. You've just been involved in the only, shall we say, overt vampire incident in Europe for decades. David sipped his coffee. Uh-huh. So? So, first that, then this? There must be a connection. We spoke before about the possible infection of other humans. The Mullins woman, for example. Yeah, and I told you she wasn't infected. Underwood changed his mind about her. And what about other people? Could there have been any others? Well, it was Lydia, but she's dead. And no one else? Think, David, think carefully. Did Lord Underwood or Lydia bite anyone else? Well, yeah, Underwood bit plenty of people at La Fantasia, but none of them survived. There was no... He stopped. He was about to say there was no mistaking that, when he remembered there was one that he wasn't sure of. Miguel. Underwood had fed on him, drunk pints of his blood and tossed him aside in a heap. But was he actually dead? David hadn't checked him. He'd just assumed that death was certain. Either he was already dead, or he very soon would have been. No, he couldn't have survived. The only person who could have revived him from that was Lydia, and Underwood destroyed her before she could have had a chance to do so. The thought of Lydia brought back the memory of her coming towards him across the floor of Sergei's office, her eyes inhuman, paralysing him before... Damo. Damo had hit her with the UV light. He'd saved him, only to be attacked himself... David remembered the horror of seeing his sister drinking Damo's blood and... Damo. Jesus, it was like he'd enjoyed it, kissing her back, his mouth on her neck, her neck glistening red with blood. The blood she had drunk from Underwood. He felt the hairs rise on the back of his neck. No, said David, shaking his head. No, it couldn't be. David, said Elizabeth, what is it? He saw she was looking at him curiously and knew he had to reassure her. It's like I said, they all died. Shot or killed for sure, I saw them die. You're sure? There was no chance that any could have survived. No, he said, louder than he intended. Elizabeth recoiled, startled. David immediately apologised. I'm sorry, Elizabeth, I didn't mean to snap like that, I just... He ran a hand through his hair. I don't know. He tried to smile, but it took effort. His mind was racing through black possibilities. Damo, he couldn't believe it, but it had to be. He'd been bitten by Lydia, and the circle of infection had been completed by his ingestion of Underwood's blood on her neck. Elizabeth smiled. Don't worry, you've been through so much, it's not surprising that you're on edge. 
David forced himself to smile, but his attention was being pulled back to the rooftop at La Fantasia. He was looking down at Damo as he was stretched into an ambulance. He'd been alive, receiving medication. But if he'd been fully infected... David, said Elizabeth, what is it? What are you thinking? Uh, I'm sorry, I was... Don't tell her. You need time to process this. I was thinking how much I need a cigarette, actually. Oh, well, I'm afraid I can't help you there. Elizabeth turned to where Tully and Kendall stood by the door. Do either of you two smoke? They replied that they didn't. Well, could one of you pop out and get some cigarettes and a lighter? The two men exchanged words before Kendall said he would and left. There, said Elizabeth. Rescue is at hand. Thanks, said David. He needed to steer the conversation away from Spain. Terrible habit. I'll keep meaning to give it up, but you know how it is. Actually, I don't. But anyway, we were talking about possible infections in Spain. Yeah, but there weren't any. I told you. Whoever it was who attacked Lisa, it wasn't someone from Spain. You're sure? Please, David, think. Sergei Alexandrov, Darko Petrovich. No, they're all dead. Lydia? No! He shouted. Christ, Elizabeth, she's fucking dead. But she would have had the motive. Who else would? Damo, he thought. Damo hadn't even been Lydia's target. He saved me from her. He is what he is because of me. I said, who else would? You have to get out of here, David. You have to end this now. Look, said David, you still haven't explained why you didn't send me to Spain. Why have you kept me here? To protect you, of course. Really? Because I'm beginning to think it was something else. Yes, you said. You're an asset. And to an extent, that is true. You're the only person who's had actual experience of fighting a vampire. Yeah, fighting and losing. Don't forget that. Do you want me to give you tips on getting your ass kicked? David, no, listen. Do you want to know what I think? I have a feeling you're going to tell me anyway. Too right I am. You've brought me here as bait. Bait? Yes, bait. How'd you catch a wolf, Elizabeth, eh? You tether a goat to a post, and then a bunch of you go and wait in the bushes with guns. And that's what I am here, isn't it? A tethered goat for you to catch the London vampire. Don't be ridiculous, David. The reason we didn't send you to Spain is because as soon as it became apparent that we were dealing with more than one vampire, we knew that this was the safest place for us to keep you, because this is where we are strongest. Oh, really? he said sarcastically. Yes. And so this strength of yours. Are I it? He cocked a thumb to where Tully was watching them from the door. You just said yourself that I'm the only man who's got experience of fighting a vampire. Well, let me tell you, your men here don't stand a fucking chance. You know, frankly, I'd be better off on my own. I would have to counsel against that, David. You need us, whether you like it or not. No, you need me as a fucking goat. Oh, please. Sorry, Elizabeth, said David. He stood up. Thanks, but no thanks. If you'll just give me back my stuff, I'll be out of here, all right? Any hotels you can recommend? I recommend that you stay here. Elizabeth glanced over at Tully. As a matter of fact, I insist. David turned in the direction of the door to see Tully draw a weapon on him. An unusual-looking pistol with what appeared to be a solid lump at the end of the barrel. What the fuck? It's a taser, 
said Elizabeth. It's a lot more effective against a vampire than a gun. Fifty thousand volts, I believe. Isn't that right, Tully? Yes, miss. So, David, unless you fancy a nasty shock, I suggest you sit down. David turned to her, his expression unbelieving. You'd do that? To me? For your own protection? Yes, of course. Elizabeth, I'm a flinch. No, I'm the flinch, the last of the fucking line. You can't shoot me. I'm the guardian, for fuck's sake. Guardian of whom, exactly? Of Lord... David faltered, unable to complete the sentence. Fuck! Elizabeth smiled. Yes, well, sadly Lord Fuck is no more. But still, never mind. We still think of you as one of our own. She held out her hand to his chair. Please, sit. Seems like I don't have much of a choice, said David, sitting down again. It's all for the best, David. Trust me. Everything is going to turn out just fine. Yeah, that's what I always tell the goat, too. A goat tied to a post, or just a man being protected for his own good? What is Daventry and West's game? And will David play it? For the London vampire, or vampires, are still out there, listeners, and darkness is falling. Join me next time for Season 4, Episode 7 of Underwood and Flinch. The music you're listening to is Ahmad Armour by Farid Farjad, courtesy of Tarane Records and our good friend Fawaz Al-Maloud. You can purchase the track from iTunes or Amazon or stream it from Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, YouTube Music and all the other places that you can stream music from. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And so there it is, ladies and gentlemen, season four, episode six. And maybe you're thinking that not much happened. But I have to say... Tons happened in there, oh yes, tons, in terms not just of what was said, but what was not said. What is going on? Clearly, Daventry and West do have some kind of agenda, but what is it? David thinks he may be being used as bait to catch a vampire. Elizabeth, of course, denies this. He's only there under their protection. They want to ask him more questions and to try and work out who the London vampire or vampires are. We know what's going on with the London vampire, or at least one of them. We know about Damo, and we know that Lydia is at large, and so we might conclude that she's the other one. But is she? Of course, I... I know everything. I know what's going on and I know where it all leads. But what I reveal to you, when and how, 
This, for me, is the hard part, and that was why this episode was, for me, hard. It's like I have to create a, a black screen in front of what's to come, and I drill a couple of choice holes in it for you to look through. If I drill the hole in the wrong place, you'll see too much, or you'll see the wrong thing altogether. I have to get those holes in exactly the right places, and the conversation between Elizabeth and David here was like having two screens, each with a series of holes that I'd drilled earlier, and getting them to align, to get their, their holes to align in some points so that a chink of light shines through to what I want you to see. And there were chinks in there, but there were also things that looked like chinks, but weren't. When underground ends, of course all will be revealed. And when it is, this is one of the episodes that you'll come back to with the benefit of hindsight and appreciate that for me, this chapter was like wiring a bomb in the dark with very chubby fingers. Hmm. But since I haven't blown myself up in the writing of it, then I think it's safe to conclude that it is now armed. Yes, huzzah. Thank you for listening, patrons, and thank you all for your patience. I know that waiting is a pain in the bum, and I do dearly wish that I could just push this stuff out faster. But of course, if I did, I'd mess it up. The, the holes I mentioned wouldn't align. They'd be in the wrong places. You'd see the wrong things. You'd see too much or nothing at all. Or worse, the, the, the story just wouldn't work. It wouldn't be logical, you know, as far as vampires can actually be logical. What I mean to say is that it would be illogical within its own mythos, within its own fantasy universe, which is, I like to think, very close to our own. And that's another tricky thing, of course, to pull off. How to make the incredible work within the credible. On the little stage of Almacena, with only one vampire in the whole world, as far as we know, it was easy. But now that the story is growing, now that I'm bringing the story into the wider world with all its real institutions and real everything else's, making that work, making the implausible, not only plausible, but convincingly so, that's the challenge. But that said, I like to think that I'm managing pretty well. Thanks to you. Especially since I don't have an, an editor or, or editors that so-called prolific authors can rely on to spin their shit into gold. Oh no, I spin my own shit, ladies and gentlemen. Sometimes I spin my shit fast, sometimes it takes a bit more spinning than usual to get it right. But rest assured, any gold you see on these pages, I spun that. That's my shit, spun by my own fair hands. Actually, I'm going to stop using this poo word because it's creating unpleasant images, isn't it? Why is everything called shit these days? That's good shit, that's bad shit, that's my shit, that's your shit, that's the shit. It's so rude, isn't it? We could, of course, just say, that's good, that's bad, that's mine, that's yours, and that's, that's really good. Oh, but no, we have to bring shit into it, don't we? Like the word has magical powers of linguistic enhancement, transforming the mediocre into the superlative. We should use a different word, I think, something neutral, like ubu. Do you remember sit ubu, sit, uh, a long time ago? 
Anyway, Ubu. Uh, that's good Ubu. That's bad Ubu. That's the Ubu. <laughs> uh, you know, when I was a teacher, I used to have to explain this kind of thing to foreign English language students. Of course, it's not the sort of language that's discussed in textbooks, but it is the sort of language they get exposed to all the time in films, songs and TV. And they want to know, what is the shit? It would have been so nice if I could have said, it's Ubu. But alas, I had to teach them the fine art of profanity, which they enjoyed immensely. But anyway, that's enough Ubu from me. I've got to get my Ubu together and get episode 20 written and out to you ASAP. And I will. But from me for now, until the moon rises again over Underwood and Flinch, farewell. Hello again, just a, a couple of quickies before I completely disappear. This is 2023 now. Uh, firstly, I said at the end there that I was getting to work on episode 20. Now, that's obviously episode 20 of the original Underwood and Flinch Underground podcast at Patreon, which is where you would need to start listening if you were to go over there uh, and become a patron yourself, which would be nice, but there's no pressure. Uh, and secondly... And you may not know this, but once upon a time, I wrote a TV sitcom. I based it in a, a live music venue, because yeah, I used to work in a live music venue in the early 90s, back when Britpop and grunge were, were things, you know. Um, and that experience led me to, to write the show. You know, when I left the job, I wrote the show. It's called Glitterballs. And I sent it off to the four UK TV channels, which was all there was around at the time to, to send it to, um, and they all rejected it. Obviously, because if they hadn't, then I'd be a TV writer right now and Underwood and Flinch would never have existed. So, swings and roundabouts, I suppose. It just wasn't meant to be, because Underwood and Flinch was meant to be. But anyway, yeah, so after that, after the show was rejected, I forgot all about Glitterballs for 20 years, uh, until 2016, when I resurrected it at Patreon. I read all six scripts, uh, all the character dialogue and also the stage directions, and podcasted. And now you can listen to it too, because I've turned those podcasts into videos and released them at YouTube. So if you want to listen, just Google Glitterballs YouTube and you will find it. Episode 1 is obviously the pilot episode and therefore the best place to start. So don't go with the first one that Google shows you. You know, it might show you episode 6 or 5 or whatever. Go to the YouTube channel, find episode 1 and then laugh your socks off at the crazy antics of what goes on in that 1990s live music venue. <laughs> Or maybe don't laugh at all, you know. We don't all have the same sense of humour, do we? Uh, one man's heaven is another man's hell and all that. Not that Glitterballs is heaven or hell. It's a sitcom written and performed by me for you at YouTube. Check it out and hope you enjoy it. But from me for now, take care and I'll see you again next Wednesday. <laughs>